I don't know if there's any useful B-roll in that 17 no. minutes of us talking. <laughs> <laughs> so no. sorry about that. <laughs> no, I, sometimes, sometimes it's nice to talk, not for the purpose of a podcast. No. Last time was a uh, highly factually erroneous episode, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah, if you want to get a real feeling for being wrong on the internet, I think... Starting a podcast is a good way to do it. <laughs> right. Let's see. So I, I um, made a lot of mistakes in describing the the history and the relationship between fuzz distortion and overdrive mm. as effects. And I, today, I come fully prepared. Oh, well done. With complete with notes <laughs> to give you the accurate the accurate history and relationship between fuzz overdrive and distortion. I see. Okay. But before I get into that, yes. I think also you have some corrections too from, from uh, last last episode. Minor, minor. They're just kind of details, but there are a couple of things to do with the, the kanji business that we were talking about. Small mistakes. Sure, nobody cares, but I described kanji as being ideographic. Right. And later when I looked it up, it turns out, strictly speaking, it's... They're actually logographic, is the technical term. And Wikipedia even said in parenthesis, they are often mistakenly referred to as ideographic. So it's, it's a common mistake. Okay, to be honest, I'd never actually heard of the word logographic before. No. What do these mean? What's the difference between these two? A logograph is a written character that represents a word or phrase, okay. says Wikipedia. So... That's basically what I thought an ideograph is, but apparently it's not. That is a, a logograph. Mm -hmm. And Chinese characters and Egyptian hieroglyphs are both fall under this logograph, logogram category. Okay. Bo both of those things. I thought hieroglyphs were ideographs as well, but apparently not. An ideograph is a graphic symbol that represents an idea or concept independent of any particular language and specific words or phrases. Ah, so, I see, I see. Yeah, so an ideograph is is more like a sign, like a no-smoking symbol, yeah, for example. Yeah, I see, I see. So that's the distinction, apparently. Mm. Although there is a relation Absolutely. between logographs and ideographs, and some Chinese characters are ideographic in mm. their etymology, Right. Even though they are, strictly speaking, logographs because they are mapping between character and words. So right. that's that's the difference there. I see. I see. Yeah. So, for example, I think a, a character like the character for Sun mm. is very, very close to the, the original sort of basically the, the picture of the Sun was a, was a circle with a dot in the middle. Mm. And then that gradually morphed into the current symbol, which kind of looks like a digital calculator eight if, <laughs> if right. in, in case you don't know <laughs> so that is an example of an actually something that could be both because it's a logograph in the sense that it is connected with the word for sun mm. but it also is an ideograph in the sense that it looks like a sun sort of well yeah i think so although hieroglyphs look much more like pictures you know egyptian hieroglyphs look yeah. much more like pictures than chinese characters and yet they're still categorized as logographic the example an example of an ideographic chinese character that's given in the wikipedia page that i'm looking at mm. is the number three oh, which okay. is three lines one right. on top of the other or number two as well in that and number one as well i suppose in that regard. right right like these are sort of abstract symbols that that represent exactly what they 
are. Right. Apparently, but I don't know. It's a distinction that that I I still don't fully understand. I don't mm. think. But interesting. Anyway, interesting. So, and of those Chinese characters, one of the ones we spoke about last episode was Shiku, which was the one which had the uh, the story with the blanket and the slave master throwing rice at the gentleman under the blanket. Right. I described the meaning of that character as to cover which is slightly inaccurate. It's more to spread out or to lay out. And the the reason for my confusion is because my sort of image was like laying out a tablecloth was my original image. And then I said, right. okay, this, this is like a tablecloth the size of 10 rice fields on top of the gentleman. Da, 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 da. And over the course of this, I had sort of blurred the lines in my mind between the meaning of to lay out or to spread out and to cover because obviously a tablecloth does kind of cover something. So they're, they're, they're quite close in meaning, hmm. but I guess that's part of the danger of this story-based system is you have to be quite careful that if you rely on it too much, sometimes you can make a mistake and get a word slightly wrong. And then from that moment on, you're practicing and remembering a slightly incorrect fact because you know my story works just as well for the word to cover as it mm. does for to spread out and so at some point when i was revising it i shifted my understanding of its meaning probably slightly too far away from its actual meaning mm. and had i not looked it up and double checked that i would have been kind of learning a wrong thing so that's something to be careful of right right anyway yeah Interesting. And it's not another correction, but just we got quite a lot of feedback mm. from your request last uh, episode to, to from people to say, you know, why do they listen and where do they listen and what situations. Uh, we got quite a few replies to that. So I just wanted to say thank you really to everyone who, who made the effort to write in. A lot of people listen on their commute, which is a thing that we forgot, we've com both of us completely forgot about last time. Because neither of us drives. And so <laughs> right, right. a lot of people's podcast listening time is in the car, which is a, a thing that we don't experience. But right. I listen on the on the bus, so I should have thought of on the commute as a, as a time. Right. We should also uh, send out a special uh, shout out to No Tamanegi, who um, is a friend of the show who uh, posted on our Reddit a beautiful, mm. beautiful rendition of a sanger. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is basically like it's a proper singer. It's just more like a deluxe singer in, in that uh, he's got a uh, big fat sausage in the middle of a slice of bread with um, some hot mustard and what looks to be yellow capsicum or yellow bell pepper, mm. if you like. Mm. The one thing that is not not quite canon <laughs> with, with this singer is that normally a sanger is done diagonally, so that the sausage is actually di diagonal in the, <laughs> across the Oh, plate. I see. That makes sense. So it kind of sticks out at either end, but it's fully covered. And you've right. got maximum coverage in the middle. But I must say that uh, no Tamanegi's uh, sanger here is uh, quite magnificent. And I think if you haven't ever visited the Station 13 Reddit, you probably should do so right now right. to uh, partake in the, in the glory of this excellent rendition of a sanger. So it is. It does I am getting hungry just looking at it, actually. Um, yeah, it looks delicious. Anyway, so let's talk about fuzz. Now I'm going to try and keep this as short as possible, despite the fact that the notes that I've taken are comprehensive. Oh my gosh. So I'm going to basically shrink it right down. <laughs> I'll just firstly name the source 
of where this information comes from, uh-huh. and it's a very interesting channel that you should check out. It's uh, it's the uh, YouTube channel of a pedal manufacturer mm-hmm. called JHS Pedals, mm. and uh, JHS Pedals is one of these, I guess you could call them boutique pedal makers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the word boutique pedal maker is a bit weird in the industry because basically, you know, if you are a smaller company, generally making your pedals by hand in a workshop with a, with a small team, and you were releasing products that are, you know, a little bit more esoteric or a little bit more um, niche mm-hmm. or specialized, then you get labeled as being a boutique pedal maker, even if your pedals are affordable. Right. You know, generally, when we, th- when we think boutique, we think like boutique watches, you know, in which case it's like kind of like it's got a brand value and it's got, uh, uh, you know. Okay, I don't know. I'm The meaning in terms of pedal making feels more natural to me. I don't, I don't associate a value with... Boutique. Okay, I think in the in the music instrument and music equipment world, the word boot, mm. boutique tends to most often be associated with boutique instrument makers, mm-hmm. and they're more like custom shops, you know, where right. you know right. you give them your spec and they'll actually hand build a single instrument for you right there. Right. Um, uh, that's what a boutique instrument is, and so a boutique pedal comes with a similar. A kind of connotation, even though you know it I may see. not actually match the reality. But anyway, JH Pedals has a JHS. Sorry, Pedals has an excellent YouTube channel. Channel where the founder and uh, CEO and director and the head honcho uh, Josh something something mm-hmm. every I think every week he has a a very nicely produced uh, vlog where he'll talk about guitar effects and the history of guitar effects and you know uh, interesting issues with um, basically. Yeah, electronic guitar and bass effects and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. he has a few excellent uh, episodes about the history of fuzz. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me summarize it for you. So previously, I I uh, rather ruinously m- mentioned that uh, fuzz overdrive and distortion were dissimilar uh, in the way that they're produced. That's kind of true, mm-hmm. but the history of how it all came together is is quite different from what I said. So here we go. Basically. We wind the clock back to 1951, mm. and one of the very first uh, recorded examples of a distorted guitar tone mm-hmm. comes from a track by uh, the artist Howlin' Wolf. Oh, yeah. And the guitarist there took a Fender Deluxe amplifier, which is a very quite small, like low wattage, very small. This is how guitar mm-hmm. amplifiers were in the day. Uh, and really cranked it up mm. on a song called How Many More Years. Mm. And that was the f- one of the first examples of an overdriven guitar sound. Mm. And in those days, of course, musicians were kind of rather scared to turn up their amps so loud because it's very, very loud, and that's mm-hmm. not something that was very common in those days. Mm-hmm. The sound, the sort of the crunchy sound of this overdriven amplifier mm. was was kind of curious to a lot of people. Mm. And there was another example in 1951 where somebody... It was a guitarist on a track called Rocket 88. I'm not actually sure who the artist was, Hmm. but um, this guitarist took a knife and basically cut up the speaker cone of his speaker Mm. to produce... To make um, it um, vibrate and that. Yeah, basically, because if you do that, it would buzz a lot, which Mm. creates this very unusual sort of distorted tone. Very interesting. Also, in 1960, uh, later in the 60s as well, the Kinks uh, were also known for doing this as well by like stabbing... Mm 
taking taking knitting needles as you know rock <laughs> rock players would tend to have lying around and stabbing holes in their speaker cones to basically create this kind of um broken uh, distorted guitar sound so mm. basically from 1951 the fascination with this overdriven sound and all the extra harmonics and the the noise and the compression mm. um that's when it was born so the seminal moment was in 1960 and there was an artist called Marty Robbins mm. a Nashville artist in in the USA and they were recording a track that was called Don't Worry mm. we should definitely have links for these songs because Don't Worry itself is really really interesting mm. and it's it's no wonder that it's it's considered a seminal moment in the history of guitar effects because the story here is that the bass player plugged his bass guitar directly into the mixing console, which is standard practice in those days for recording bass guitar. Mm -hmm. However, the channel strip that the, the bass guitar was plugged into was actually broken. Oh, okay. And halfway through the song, when you listen to Don't Worry, it's, it starts off like this nice kind of pleasant sort of country ballad mm -hmm. song, very, very pleasant and polite, and, you know, as, as was the modus operandi in 1960 for country music. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the song, there is this insanely raucous kind of buzzy bass tone that kind of burr, 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 comes out of nowhere. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous and out of place. Mm. And it was caused by this broken channel strip in the mixer. Mm. And apparently there was a quite an argument in the studio about whether or not this broken sound should be left in the track mm. uh, or whether or not they should re-record it. Mm. And... There were various people on the side of saying, no, we should leave it in because, you know, it's it's funny, it's interesting, it's unusual. Mm. And, of course, there were people who were saying, no, this is ridiculous. This kind of dirty, <laughs> raucous tone doesn't fit here. Right, right. We should re-record it. Right. And as it turns out, the side for leaving it in there won. Mm. So this track came out. And one of the people who was who was involved in the production of the song was so intrigued by this funny bass tone mm. that – uh, he went out and actually created a piece of electronics that would produce this broken tone mm. basically by using broken transistors, mm. kind of simulating the broken channel strip in the mixing mm -hmm. disc. And thus was born the very first guitar pedal, which is called the Maestro Fuzz Tone. Mm. That was so it was originally bass that inspired that, not guitar. That's right. And so it was released the, the Maestro Fuzz Tone was released in nineteen sixty two, so two years after the Marty Robbins track. Mm -hmm. And it was basically a sort of an artificial way to achieve that tone on that track. Mm. And it was it was originally and uh, initially marketed to bass players, mm -hmm. but it was not really that successful. Apparently they sort of sold about like five hundred or something like that. Mm. But I think that at the time bass players couldn't really find a good way to kind of uh, incorporate the sound into the mm. music of the time. Mm. So the Maestro Fuzz Tone, basically, they decided to, the guy who created it, decided to re, uh, what would you call it? In modern day speak, we would say pivot. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> rebrand re the Maestro Fuzz, fuzz Tone uh, as, mm. and sorry, not rebrand it, but change the marketing direction. Mm. Instead of targeting bass players to target guitarists, Mm -hmm. because we already had a bit of this kind of uh, swell of interest in the the distorted guitar sound right so um the angle was that you could you could make your guitar sound like a tuba mm. or a cello mm -hmm. or or something like that you know rather you know look at the wonderful amazing creative 
potential of this effect that makes your guitar sound like a tuba. <laughs> so bear in mind now we have two different varieties of distorted guitar tone. We have the distorted amp mm -hmm. that comes from the, the early 50s. We're basically mm -hmm. turning up these small amplifiers. And we have the, the fuzz sound, which is basically created by putting the sound through broken transistors. Right. So, in, so this is 1962. The Maestro Fuzz Tone was being made, but despite um, this new marketing angle, mm -hmm. it still wasn't really catching on very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and people weren't sort of interested so much in some kind of funny box you had to plug in that would make your guitar sound like a tuba mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. a certain band in 1965 that went by the name The Rolling Stones had a song in 1965 called Satisfaction. Ah, yes. Yes. So Keith Richards, who was the guitarist, mm -hmm. wanted to have a horn part. Like he wanted to have like a, a brass part to play in Satisfaction, mm -hmm. to play this classic mm -hmm. line that goes, da, 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 that classic line mm -hmm. in, the, in the song Satisfaction. They couldn't afford or couldn't arrange for actual horn players to come in to do the song. Mm -hmm. uh, so Keith Richards had the idea, well, why don't we just use this funny box that I got from America called the Maestro Fuzz Tone? Mm. So he used the fuzz tone on this track, Satisfaction. Mm. And initially, actually, Keith Richards himself has been quoted as saying that he didn't really like the sound of it because it didn't actually sound that much like brass. Right, right, right. But just because of everything else that came together so perfectly with that song mm. and the performance from all of the other, you know, brilliant musicians in the Rolling Stones, mm. the song Satisfaction was a smash hit mm -hmm. for its time and on it was this maestro fuzz tone sound. Mm. And that's basically what kind of, that was the the spark that really set the whole thing on fire. All right. Okay. The next the next step in the same year, nineteen sixty five, a session guitarist who had got a maestro fuzz tone to try and achieve that satisfaction sound mm -hmm. went in London. He went into a music shop called the McCary Brothers Music Shop mm. uh, and spoke to the the shop owner, saying, "Look, this maestro fuzz tone from America, mm. it's interesting and it gets me that." tone that Keith Richards has, but mm. do you think we could like modify it to give it more bass, more low end mm. and more sustain? Mm. Um, and one of the techs at the shop said, okay, yeah, I'll give it a go. Uh, and thus was born the Vox Tone Bender. All right. Okay. And the, the Tone Bender, this is in 1965, gave birth to the third of the, the seminal, most important fuzz pedals. And that was the Fuzz Face in America. Mm. And the first face was made extremely, extremely popular by Jimi Hendrix. Mm. So basically it started in 1951 with broken speakers or overdriven amps. Then the, the next kind of turning point was 1960 with a broken channel strip in a mixer, mm. giving that the, the fuzz tone, followed then by Keith Richards with Satisfaction in 1965, then the birth of the Vox Tone Bender, then consequently 1966, the birth of the fuzz face. And these are the three sort of pillars of the fuzz, the early fuzz tone. Mm. And basically, uh, yeah, and then the, the next step was in 1969 when the very first distortion pedal was created. And that was created by a New York company called Electroharmonics and it was called the Big Muff. And basically the difference between fuzz and distortion Mm. as opposed to overdrive, because overdrive is when you're cranking up the amp and the signal is overpowering a, a vacuum tube. Mm. Fuzz is caused by a broken transistor. Mm -hmm. And now distortion, the difference here is that the Big Muff was unique because basically it was 
similar to a a fuzz face, except much much higher gain. Mm. So this is the very first time that these devices were marketed under the term distortion, because mm. the big muff was actually had the word distortion written on it. Mm. So over the seventies, uh, amplifiers were getting louder and louder. And of course, as an amplifier gets louder, it means that you need to actually turn it up even more in order to drive it to right, get that right, kind of right. tone. Right. So uh, in 1977, the answer to this was a different technique of creating uh, this fuzzy, distorted tone. Mm. Instead of using transistors, early devices in 1977 was the MXR distortion and the Proco Rat. Mm. They actually used an op-amp to create hard clipping to achieve the sound. So basically now we've got a massive amount of gain going through these devices in order to sort of completely blow the the input gain of these uh, mm. guitar signals mm. uh, out before that goes out to a very, very large amplifier. Mm. Uh, Japan enters the scene in 1978, one year later, uh, with two great devices, the Boss DS1 Distortion and the Ibanez Tube Screamer. And that's basically the end of the history. Like after 1978, mm. the Boss DS1 and the Tube Screamer were, were very affordable. Mm. They sounded good. Uh, and then all through the – as you go into the 80s then, you know, the amps are just becoming huge mm. with the, like the, the Marshall stack being obviously the, the leader of the pack. Mm. And that's basically it. So oh. the difference then between overdrive, distortion and fuzz – Fuzz and distortion are more or less the same thing in the way that they're created, but distortion is much more high-powered. Mm. Uh, and later on, distortion is produced by op-amps instead of transistors. Right. And overdrive is caused by um, yeah, pushing the signal hot through a vacuum mm. tube or mm. sticking knitting needles into your speaker cone. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Oh, very interesting. Interesting that the uh, Big Muff was the first pedal marketed as, as distortion rather than fuzz because I definitely think of the Big Muff and the Big Muff Pie and so forth as like fuzz pedals now. Yeah. Nowadays, they, I think because of the ubiquity of the, the Boss and the Ibanez offerings, mm. which, which were, I mean, the Boss DS1 is called Distortion. It's written right on it. Right. Uh, I think because of the ubiquity of those devices in from the late 70s onwards, uh, the Big Muff has sort of become now because it is a different technology. Mm. These are because they're using op amps as opposed to transistors. Mm. Um, the big muff now, just because of its sound, uh, has sort of let, um, basically creeped back into the the fuzz side of the Venn diagram. Mm. So oh, interesting. Yeah, there you go. Mm. That is the complete history of uh, fuzz and distortion and overdrive. Wow! And if you are interested in finding out more, definitely go out and check out um, JHS pedals. Uh, their YouTube channel is is very fascinating. There's a lot of other interesting topics there about the history of other various effects as well. So. Cool. I'll stick a link in the show notes. Speaking of uh, music, mm. we, I can tell that we haven't actually done an episode for, what, three or four weeks because in our shared note here that, that uh, lists up what topics we have on the cards for this episode, I see there's actually two that I've written that says Alex's, the latest, same thing. <laughs> Alex's latest music recommendation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that. So I have two for you this week, uh-huh. Danny, um, which, uh, both of which I think you will really, really enjoy. Mm. They're very different. They're both in the sort of the rock genre, though. Mm-hmm. The one that I've just recently discovered this week is called The Night Flight Orchestra. Mm. 
Interesting name. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Basically, it is late 70s, early 80s prog rock. Mm. It's a it's a current day band full of veteran musicians from that era. Mm. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, so so they they get that sound of that era, like the late 70s. Mm. I'm talking like Toto and mm-hmm. like Electric Light Orchestra, mm-hmm. Yellow, uh, or like, you know, uh, Starship was a bit, is a bit later, I guess, or uh, let's see, late 70s Genesis. Uh, sorry, yeah, late 70s Genesis or uh, all of those sort of classic prog rock mm-hmm. uh, era bands. Mm. This band, the um, Night Flight Orchestra, Absolutely brilliant. So I highly recommend you check out their album from uh, 2018, mm. which is uh, called uh, Sometimes the World Ain't Enough. Mm. It's oh, The second track is is just gold. I mean, it's fantastic vocal performance, very high, high-pitched uh, sort of tenor. A classic kind of rock. Tenor voice mm. and the singer. The yeah. Classic, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of... Uh, Irrelevant guitar solos and big drums and <laughs> and synthesizers and oh, it's just absolutely brilliant. So that's that's the first music recommendation. Mm-hmm. The second one is a band. Oh, by the way, uh, the Night Flight Orchestra is from Sweden, mm-hmm. and uh, the second band uh, to recommend recommend is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. It's a band called Leprous, mm. and they are from Norway. And I imagine that Leprous will probably be more interesting to you, Danny, in that this is also kind of like, um, I guess you would call it prog metal, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's quite sophisticated music, mm-hmm. not unlike the uh, the Danish band that I'd recommend a few episodes ago called um, Black Book Lodge. Mm. Uh, it's quite cerebral, kind of, uh, yeah, sophisticated metal music, I guess you could call it. Okay. The the singer the singer has a a huge vocal range mm. and does a, a wonderful falsetto a lot in a lot of mm. their tracks as well. Mm. And so yeah, highly recommend. Very very dark, mm. like most of the music from Scandinavia, I guess. Right. <laughs> Not necessarily a sort of heavy in a sort of a, a heavy metal grungy kind of way. Like it is very mm-hmm. very refined, but there's there's mm. a lot of imagery and. Uh, a lot of sort of evocative depth there that I can definitely recommend. So, interesting. Leprous oh. and Night Flight Orchestra. Oh, I have to have a listen and, and put links in the show notes and stuff. Actually, I was listening to something uh, good the other day on the internet, which was by a sort of collaboration uh, between a, a musician and and a writer called Remote Transmission. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course, is is your track that we mentioned, we teased at the end of last episode. But it's very good. I listened to it now. I, mm. I very much enjoyed it. Oh, great. It's, uh, yeah, it, it was sort of an interesting kind of soundscape-y kind of feeling, but with the, with the vocals as well. Like, mm. I'd be interested to know if you took, because you just released it as a single track on its own, uh, like it is, I, I, I listen to it on Apple Music, but um, it's on all the things, and we'll put links in the show notes again. But you know, it was it, it, it was written as a single, and it was just that one track. Mm. But singles quite often have like alternative versions and B sides and stuff. And I'd be interested to know what a version of that track. I think you made the right choice by putting the vocals in, mm. but I'd also be interested to hear a version without the vocals as well. Yeah, it's it's hardly as effective. Like I think. Um, 
the original, I mean, I won't dwell too long because I think I've spoken about this two or three times before, but the original concept was that there would be mm. no words in the music. Right, right. Yeah, I remember. And, and you, you know, the story would be separate and then you would listen and sort of feel for yourself how that music fits yeah. with that story. Precisely, yeah. But, I, um, you know, when, when um, my uh, collaborator sent through, you know, the drafts of, the, of his stories, which are all under, mm. under 200 characters, I mean, they're just mm-hmm. so fantastic that I thought, well, this... It would be such a shame for people to listen to the music and not see the the words mm. and not read them for some reason. Mm. So you know, that's when I got involved. Uh, uh, the voice actor who did the, mm. the the reading for us. Yeah, and I think I mean it works. It sound you know it sounds good. The the reading does feel like it plays an integral part together with the music as well. Mm. So I'm not saying that you should have done it without the words, mm. but I, I just think it would be interesting to hear what that alternative version sounds like. Right, right. And to to feel that experience, you know, to given that I know that there are words and I can choose to read the words or imagine them, mm. to kind of feel what that experience is like as well. Yeah. Originally, we were not going to release this until we had mm-hmm. several uh, songs to go together. Mm. And this is an ongoing thing. Yeah. It's called 4001 because mm-hmm. it's basically <laughs> the, the all of the songs will be titled with these numbers. Yeah, yeah you mentioned and that. And it'll be kind of like a chronological sort of timestamp, mm-hmm. not necessarily years, but you'll find out. Yeah. Anyway, so we were going to sort of have, you know, a range of songs to release together mm-hmm. so you could actually follow through. But, you know, I, I um, in the end we're just sort of – I decided that, you know – Musically, I'm not super happy with the way that 4001 came out. Like, I think it's, I think it achieves what I set out to do, and and the, the mm-hmm. story writing is excellent, and the voice acting is excellent. But it got to a point where it's sort of I was listening to it one day, and I thought, yeah, you know, either I completely remake this and you know add an an extra one year onto the whole process because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how long this one took not because I was working on it for one year but just because so many other things got in the way sure uh, or we just release it and move on to the next one and uh mm. you know I took advice of my um previous uh partner in creative and business crime back when I was working at Winning Blimp and mm-hmm. his advice always was that your best opus is your next one right and uh it's very true that, you know, it comes to a point where, well, it's not really going to get any better, is it? You know, I, I just release it. And essentially what we're after is more of a consolidation of this workflow and this process and this, this mm. artistic direction. And that is only going to come by releasing more of these and, uh, mm. you know, just getting all hung up on trying to make the very first one as, as good as it can be. Uh, it's, it's not really constructive for that objective. Yeah, that's definitely a trap. Right? Yeah. Certainly, um, game developers have a similar similar situation, mm-hmm. especially the first game that people will do will tend to be, mm. you know, a whole lot of effort put into something that kind of turns out to be not that great, <laughs> mm-hmm. just because you don't have the experience and you don't have the, right. you know, a full set of the know-how yet. And um, the, the more you do, basically, the better things become. And that's really the goal with releasing 4001 now, instead of mm-hmm. constantly tweaking it to try and make it better. Mm. So, uh, as an update, we have um, the next installment. Just actually today, I received the drafts for the the Mm -hmm. next installment, and it's looking pretty fantastic. Oh, cool. Uh, He's uh, he's, um, a remarkable writer. Mm. One interesting thing you might be interested to hear is that initially one kind of um, uh, issue that we had when we started working together on this is that he was uh, eager to incorporate into his writing 
actual musical imagery mm-hmm. that I could basically take as cues for the music. Mm. So the adjectives that he would use would often often be things that were related to music or harmony or sound mm-hmm. uh, as sort of obvious clues for me to sort of mm-hmm. latch onto and say, okay, well, that's, you know, for example, discordant mm. or harmonious or, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, like uh, the word percussive or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, things like that were often adjectives that he would use in his early drafts. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that we actually made a decision not to do mm. just because the connection between something that has no musical imagery in the form of adjectives at all mm-hmm. together with music is a lot more interesting when you know you interpret something so one example in this uh, the current track 4001 is the the spires mm-hmm. so when you listen to it you'll hear it referencing spires in the distance mm. and uh Basically, the the synthesizer part that comes from the um, the uh, Roland JV ten eighty actually, which is sitting right next to me, that you hear at the very start, is basically my um, that's my idea of what spires would sound like. I see, <laughs> uh, and so um, that connection is a bit more interesting than if if it was much more kind of blatant and right, much more right. obvious. Yeah, run so, the risk of being a bit cheesy as well. Yes, yeah. it's, it's full of all these. Sort of musical references, that's right. especially if the words are being spoken. Yeah, that's like right. It might not be so bad if they exist as a separate thing, and that you read and you go, "Oh, I see. This is that bit and stuff." But if they're being spoken, and like somebody says, you know, harmony, and then there's a harmony, and somebody says discord, and then there's a discord. <laughs> I can see how that would get old fast. Yeah, it was a bit limiting, I think, with his drafts with those kinds of words. It kind of felt that I had to do do it that way. Right. Right. But anyway, yeah, it's. Uh, Yes, we're hoping to move a little bit faster with the with the next instalment, so hopefully it won't take a year. <laughs> <laughs> Good, well, I'm looking forward to it. Mm. Thanks. Uh, I noticed, actually, that you, last week, I think it was, you had, like, a, a, a hugely viral tweet. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did you do with your... Uh, you basically turn off the notifications on your phone when this happened? Because it's like, it was like 400 retweets or something? More. At the time of speaking, because I'm still... Getting retweets and wow. likes and things now. Amazing. As we record, it has 706 retweets and 1,531 <laughs> likes. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And only six replies. But uh, I have notifications turned off for Twitter, right. except for uh, direct messages, I think. Okay. Maybe at replies as well. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't a problem. But for a very long time... I literally couldn't open Twitter without the little bell at the bottom having a number next to it. Like, the, mm. without there being some, you know, I would open it and there'd be like 10 notifications and then I'd open it again two minutes later and I'd already have like more. Mm. Uh, so it's very weird because it's, um, I mean, I think in the the general, you know, the wide scheme of things on Twitter, this is, you know, 700 retweets and 1500 likes is is kind of small fry Mm. but uh it's definitely the most popular sort of highest engagement if you like tweet that i've Mm. ever made and it's not like it doesn't deserve it (laughs) so it's um the, the this is this is interesting though because the it's actually a reply to somebody else's message. Right, right. It's like a thread, already three deep by the time you get to my... Right. So I have two questions for you. Number one mm. is, 
how many new followers did you gain from having 706 retweets? Very few. I, <laughs> I don't... Um, yeah, I got a couple, but not many people. It is interesting. I think it's... This is, you know, I, I'm not that fussed mm. about... Uh, no, of course not. ...online social media engagement or, or the number of likes or whatever. Right. Um, but for some people, they are, right? For some people, it's legitimately, like, if you're running a business or if you're just trying to market something, it's mm. uh, it's an important thing. And so it is an interesting thing to sort of look at and, and analyze a little bit. And I think possibly the nature of this tweet... So just to summarize what we're talking about, as somebody who is obviously learning Japanese and getting frustrated tweeted the first tweet in this thread mm. which is that classic spider-man meme image i'll put links but you may be familiar with the image where the two spider-man spider-men are looking at each other and pointing at each other like mm. wait that's me kind of thing yeah uh, and it's used a lot in memes and they had put katakana be like and then put this image with sheet on the one spider-man and suit on the other which are very similar looking katakana characters right uh and then somebody else a friend of the show in fact cheese meister mm. responded saying hiragana be like and putting sa and chi which again are just mirror images of each other they're right quite similar and, and when you're first learning japanese you know easy to get mixed up characters but completely by coincidence i mean this this tweet of mine it's not even my joke mm. uh, i had earlier that day i had seen a thread on the latin subreddit where somebody was making the comment that a lot of Western English speakers or, or people from European countries uh, kind of make the slightly slightly deprecating claim about Japanese and Asian languages in general, that kind of all the characters, quote, look the same. Mm. Like, they, they can't tell the difference. And this person on Reddit was saying, well, look at Roman characters, where B, P, D, and Q all look extremely similar to each other. Mm. <laughs> and so he took the Spider-Man image, or I don't know, it was he or she, that they took the Spider-Man image and they <laughs> they took the two Spider-Man and they actually mirrored them upside down and they arranged it so that each one was facing the way that that letter mm. was facing. So right. the <laughs> like the B was the 180 degrees rotated Q right. and the P was the 180 de degrees rotated D and they're all pointing at each other. Right. And it's quite funny. So I, I had seen that and so I just copied that and put it in the same thread as like, you know, as a response to to all this. And I think, that to be fair, like, we're talking about my tweet being viral and all that, but it's the third one in the thread mm. and the first two are were the most, like the first one got 11,000 retweets. Right, right. And 20,000 likes. So mm. it's a, you know, that was huge. And I think a lot of the people who saw mine were just people who had clicked through to the thread and and liked that one as well. Right, right. I see. So it was, but I kind of felt a bit bad because I just, like, I know the person who was, who had done the second one in the thread. And so I was kind of just, in my mind, I was just replying to him as like a personal, you know, friends talking to each other kind of thing. Right. And then, it, you know, it got what, to me, feels like quite a lot of attention. And so I felt like I had to sort of re reply and say, actually, I didn't make this. This is not my joke. I, I took it off the Latin subreddit. <laughs> right, right. It turns out there's a whole um, there's a whole set of memes that people have done with this image, which I'd later stumbled across, where somebody has taken, for example, V and W, 
and then they arranged the Spider-Man that's on W so that he's duplicated and just slightly offset, so it looks the way that V is just two Vs next to each other and joined together. Right, right. Um, and they had L and I, where they'd just taken the head of the Spider-Man with the eye next to it and dragged it up a little bit <laughs> so that it's separated from its body. <laughs> just all these things where they're like <laughs> trying to take the Spider-Man and turn them into these characters. So in conclusion, the internet is dumb. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. No, it's, it. It is kind of fascinating though because you answered my second question there because my second question was going to be, or the reason I asked, firstly, the reason I asked how many new followers you got mm-hmm. is not not because you know th- that's important at all. Mm. It's just because I was curious that uh, you know, for example, for somebody who does this for a living, like a community manager, right, or or somebody who's really really interested and eager to sort of get you know follow account up, mm. they may look at your tweet and sort of try to analyze it and to sort of think you know what right. you're fantastic. You know, how can I get a bit of this kind of success? Right, right. Like if I, you know, if I want to get more engagement right then evidently all the deeply thoughtful tweets that i uh, regularly put out <laughs> right are, are a waste of time and i should be just putting more dumb memes <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly uh, the the um second question that i had is basically in your basically fr- yeah from your point of view what what was it that kicked this off and I think you kind of answered it there that if you look at right. the previous tweets with like eleven thousand retweets, right? Then, right, exactly. Uh, as you said, then it's it's quite likely to be just people who are looking back to through the thread and finding right, uh, finding right. finding yours there. And it's it's also a bit of a snowball effect because you know as more people retweeted my one independently of the first one, mm. more their followers are all then getting exposed to it uh, and seeing it and retweet. I mean, this is just how social media works, right? So, right. So was... I'm going to just send you a link to the most viral tweet I've ever done, mm-hmm. which has a modest 56 retweets. <laughs> ah, yes. This, this tweet, the classic. This is another one that isn't your joke, right? This I've seen doing the rounds in a couple of places. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, so this was a tweet from 2014, from five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and it is, it's this picture of the it's the the classic um, uh, PC Mac advertisement campaign where the PC is this kind of boring looking guy in a suit, and Mac is this kind of cool guy in the in the jeans with his hands in his pockets, and and there's a third guy there that joins them, who's <laughs> kind of this weird looking bearded guy dressed a little bit below his age <laughs> with, with the jeans and flashing up the, the horns with his hands with Amiga written underneath in, uh, in the, 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 the classic Amiga Topaz font, Amiga if font. you wanted to know. And, and with lots of A's at the end. It's PC. Hi, I'm a PC. I'm a Mac. Amiga! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, that's the closest thing I've ever gotten to a, a, a viral tweet. But it, it's, it's kind of annoying that, it's so arbitrary. Like in this case, as an example, on the, on the Amigas, I can't remember which birthday. It was like the 50th birthday or the 40th mm. birthday, I think. Mm. Uh, one of those two. I actually tweeted this very same picture again just to mm. see what would happen, mm-hmm. uh, saying that, you know, it's the Amigas, whatever it was, birthday. Mm. And I got like two likes. <laughs> Mm. probably you was one of them i don't know <laughs> but it's it's so arbitrary i mean it's like when i put this picture up in 2014 of course i didn't expect that it was going to become 
popular at all. And of course, fifty six retweets is nothing mm. on the on the scale of what you know more famous people get for their tweets. You know, and it's the same with yours. Like yours is a very very clever tweet, but it's not your original joke. Like it's it's not right. Right. You know. It's funny and it's placed well, and uh, the timing of it is very good there. Mm. But it, it's it's not your you know original content or anything, right? And that that kind of makes it even more sort of frustrating and arbitrary that you know these things, you know, there's just this funny coincidental collision of different things that happen, and then all of a sudden something that has no real, well, can have no real creative or artistic or intellectual merit at all suddenly mm. becomes incredibly sort of seen by so many people yeah yeah i mean it is it is sort of i could see how it could be frustrating although maybe because i'm not particularly bothered about the whole notion but it it kind of just feels like a a natural part of the way of the world that this is just this is going to happen mm. i think it would be frustrating if you were the creator of yeah one of these images and when you put it out, you know, it wasn't particularly successful. And then somebody else copies it and posts it up mm. and it becomes super popular. Mm. Like, that's why I started to feel a bit bad about this one. And I quote tweeted with a link to the original place that I'd seen it. Mm. Not that I know f for sure that that's where it originated, right? The place that I saw, the person who put it on the Latin subreddit may also have picked it up from somewhere else and just be posting it. So mm. I don't know, but I think attribution is a, it's kind of a difficult problem on the internet. Mm. And there's a, uh, there's a whole Twitter account, which I follow actually, which can't remember the name of, but I'll see if I can find it and put it in the, in the show notes. But it's um, basically all instances of uh, where people are asked to do work mm. and they are not going to get paid, but they will get, you know, the, the offer is, well, you'll get exposure mm. In fact, I think it might be called forexposure.txt or something like that. It's the Twitter account. Uh, but the other, the other kind of uh, thing that you see a lot there is people who, you know, see their own work, like often artists, right? So they've done some drawing or painting or something, mm. and they see it on somebody else's website or on Twitter or, or somewhere. And usually they just politely ask the person who posted it up, you know, could you credit me could you put a link to my website because this is my work mm. sometimes they're asking them to take them take it down which is also a perfectly reasonable thing because it's their work right mm. often it's not that and they're just asking for f f to be credited and the responses that they get from people where it, there's a certain subset of the internet populace who believe they had like a god-given right to post work without attribution mm. and that it's completely unreasonable for the original artist to even be asking for it uh, and it's it's funny to see that that's that sort of culture has has kind of grown and exists but you can see where it came from insofar as the internet has always had this notion of picking things up from random places and reposting them and the sort of provenance of work is often very difficult to track and it takes an actual conscious effort to try and and make sure to credit things where you can right and know that you can't always so i did what i could with this i've tried to be more conscious of it recently because i definitely i know that i used to not think about it at all mm. and it's only since seeing twitter accounts like this one that is highlighting the issue that i've realized 
you know how how much of an issue it is mm. uh, so i try to be a bit conscious of it but at the same time i don't have time to sort of deeply research exactly where every random meme like who was the first person to kind of cut up this same image and put this particular set of text on it right, right. <laughs> right. so but 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 i did i did try and link to the to where i saw it mm. and that's as much as I can do, I think. Yeah, I think you did. I definitely think you did the right thing. It's just the funny, strange nature of the internet, isn't it? Because, I mean, really, a lot of these memes, when they first come about, mm. you know, you don't... Part of the kind of strange anonymity... Anon, help me out. Anon, anonymity. Anonymity. Anonymousness. Yes. <laughs> anonymity of, of this kind of humour is just because you just really don't know who originally created it, and so therefore it could be you. Right, right. (laughs) And so go ahead. One recent example, not so recent now actually, but one example um, in recent memory Mm. where, you know, potentially there could have been a very, very nasty nasty situation where somebody who had done something extremely imaginative and creative could not have actually received recognition for their work that became wildly successful. Mm. I recall that when... um, uh, Apple's former CEO Steve Jobs passed away. Mm. There was an an image uh, that was circulating quite immediately after he passed away, mm. which was the Apple logo, mm. uh, where the bite in the apple was actually the silhouette of his face. Oh right, yeah. And I remember seeing that image and, and thinking at the time when he had passed away that like that is a brilliant, brilliant image. Like what a creative mm. idea to do it that way. Mm. You know, basically as here is the man and this is the company that he created mm-hmm. and you know mm. and when that was circulating around after he had passed away, mm. uh, I remember that um, the original sort of viral tweet, uh, I believe it was Twitter, mm. actually did what you did where like one tweet after they said, oh, if you're interested, this image was not created by me. Mm-hmm. It was, And it, it turned out to be an artist in Hong Kong mm-hmm. uh, who had originally created that image for, I think mm. it might have been for a publication or something like that. Mm. And yeah, it was, it was uh, that's one example where it's, it's a great thing that this kind of... Um, uh, uh, acknowledgement of where the the origin, the original thing comes from, is is very important because yeah. when you're talking about a piece of internet humor, like you know a, a cell from a, a Spider-Man cartoon with some mm-hmm. things adjusted on it for humor, that's one thing. And yes, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it's creative and it's interesting. But when you're talking about a, a rather brilliant piece of art that that yeah. has a sort of a deeper, more sophisticated meaning than just something that's kind of funny in the moment, yeah. Uh, specifically this Steve Jobs uh, Apple logo picture mm. you know it's it's uh, really really great when the the recognition from that can go directly back to the person who came up with the idea yeah yeah definitely mm. um there's another account that i follow that i have slightly mixed feelings about when it comes to this like they i think they are trying but there's there's a couple of things that are questionable. Is the Archilect account? Are you familiar with that? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Uh, so the Archilect account is actually it's it's not a sort of human posting things manually. It's a bot, mm. and it's been trained to try and find images that are interesting or very artistic or uh, thought provoking, and and it just posts those images, and. It first started as like, this is an interesting sort of little project and here are all these images. Uh, and it's part of its aesthetic is this minimal aesthetic. So mm. it has this sort of, its avatar is this logo with like three 
lines. I can't remember if they're horizontal or vertical, but just um, white lines on a black background. Yeah, they're vertical. And every tweet is just the image with no text right. and no context at all. And the image is supposed to sort of stand in its own right. And as you're scrolling through your, your feed of memes and random comments and people arguing on the internet, occasionally you just get this bold image sort of standing out. Hmm. But a little while after this bot started, you know, some people started to say, like people whose art had been picked up by this bot, uh, started to say, well, hang on, like, you're getting lots of followers and lots of retweets and stuff from my work. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not getting any, you know, it's, none of that traffic is being driven to my portfolio or my site or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. And which is a fair... Fair point. And so what the developer of this bot decided to do was they made a second Twitter account, mm. which is also a bot and they're linked. So every time, you know, it, it's the same bot basically, but it's plugged into both accounts. So the bot goes out, it finds these images, it posts the image on its own to the one account, the Archilect account, mm. and then it posts a link to the page that the image came from on the other account, which is called Archilinks. But then... Um, and so if you follow both accounts, you see the image on its own, and then mm. as a tweet, a separate tweet afterwards, you see the accreditation. But then you need to be following... You need to... Well, firstly, I wasn't ever aware of the, the linked... The linking account, so... Right, doesn't that's s- the problem, right? Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> seem like such a great solution, really. It's... I mean, I, I'm not sure off the top of my head, because when I heard about this, I I followed both, because I thought oh, that's good. I would like to see the accreditation of all these, you know, the, the, see the person credited mm. f- for their work. So I'm not sure. It may be that the the second tweet is posted as a reply to the first, mm. which helps a little bit because yeah. if you click through on the first tweet, you'll see it come up in the thread. That makes more sense. That may... I'm not sure if that's the case. It's not perfect, though, because it's not guaranteed to be the first reply, right? Mm. Somebody else may post a reply that is more popular or whatever. Right. And you still have to click through on the tweet. Like a lot of the time in the client, you'll just be scrolling up and you see the image. You might click on the image to see it bigger. But that doesn't, when you do that, that just shows the image on its own. It doesn't show the, the tweet in its replies. Right. So there's still a relatively small chance you're going to encounter it. Yeah. But on the other hand, I can see why aesthetically they don't want to muddy up this tweet with a link above the image. Mm. So I'm not sure it's a bit of a gray area, but I feel I feel slightly, not guilty, but you know, I have slightly mixed feelings about their approach because I can see they're trying to do the right thing, but I'm just not sure it quite is, is enough. Yeah. Obviously there are, there are bigger problems in the world than people not being credited properly for their tweets, mm. but you know, I, I, giving people credit for work is is important, and doing that without losing either the these aesthetic ideals that Archilect is trying to stick to, mm. or without losing the kind of free sharing, uh, very dynamic nature of the internet and the World Wide Web as a whole, is an interesting challenge that that you know. I think we are seeing being developed live the the approaches to that. Yeah, Pinterest comes to mind actually at this point. Where I remember when Pinterest was first um, uh, 
Pinterest first came out, I was actually one of the very, very early uh, early adopters of Pinterest. Mm-hmm. I don't use it so much anymore, but when it first mm-hmm. appeared on the scene, I thought it was a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know, Pinterest is a social media network, uh, which is entirely visual. Mm-hmm. And basically, you, you it presents itself as this kind of infinitely scrolling uh, tiles of different images. And uh, you... Uh, you know, you can define sort of certain kinds of images. You, you follow people, obviously, and they will put certain kinds of images up there. It's kind of like Instagram, except instead of seeing it in a stream one by one, at least on the desktop, you're seeing it mm. as, as a bunch of tiles. Mm. And um, the, the difference between Instagram and Pinterest is that Instagram is trying to emphasize photos that you take yourself mm-hmm. with your phone mm. and put through their filters. Whereas with Pinterest, it's more actual images that you find on the internet, you right. basically repost them on the Pinterest site for the benefit mm-hmm. of your followers. Mm. And I remember that there was a time, like I think one year after Pinterest started to get some traction when I was using it in those days where there was a word about Pinterest being shut down because there was the chance that it could be violating sort of copyright and um, you know, well, unauthorized broadcast or unauthorized mm-hmm. uh, usage of images by just people linking them on the Pinterest site. Right. I think the reason how they – it's sort of a loophole thing where they, they get around the potential for this being illegal by basically saying that it's a walled garden and it's entirely inside Pinterest. Oh, and that's why it changed because I did notice at one point it used to be that you didn't have to have an account and you could view people's Pinterest pages without an account, which I used to do. Mm because I didn't particularly want to sign up to Pinterest. And then there came a day when I couldn't do that anymore and it had everything blurred out and it said you need to log in to see it. Right, yeah. So I think that's probably... Uh, actually, I wasn't aware of that, but I think that's probably mm. a reaction to that situation that is right. kind of like a sort of a Facebook approach. It's like, well, you know, we set the rules inside our garden and so, <laughs> mm. <laughs> of course, then in the case of Pinterest, if you click on the image, it'll take you, it, it links directly to where it originally came from mm, okay. because you're not usually posting actual images, you're posting links to images, right? which is the way that Pinterest works. So you could say that, well, that's great. You know, if you click on the image, you, could, you get taken to where it came from. So what's wrong with that? But th- of course, the, 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 the other side of that argument is that, well, unless somebody specifically goes and writes there, you know, this image used courtesy of this photo- photographer or this designer or this artist. Mm. Mm. If you don't click on it, you're not going to see that. And if you just repin mm. it, as they call it mm. on Pinterest, or like it, mm-hmm. and then it gains sort of popularity inside the Pinterest mm. garden, mm. doesn't necessarily mean that that artist is going to receive recognition for that just because you have to actually click it to, right. to go there. Right. So, yeah, yeah, similar to the Archilect problem, I suppose. Yeah. And there's a difference between – I mean, this is a thing that the Archilect – I don't think can take this approach because it's a bot and it's not human curated, but there's a a difference between putting a link to the page where the bot found the image, Mm. which is one thing. And it's a good start compared with like a human actually writing words of like photograph by such and such, and Mm. then putting a link to their portfolio or something like that. Mm. You know, that's again, another step further in the direction of uh, giving, giving a proper credit Right, right. Um, it's it's super interesting to see how all these things develop, especially, I think, uh, two or three weeks ago was the 30th anniversary of the invention of the World Wide Web. Mm. 
So it's it's been 30 years, and the World Wide Web originated was originally developed on a Next Station machine. Probably, uh, probably in Vim. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it was developed by a guy called Tim Berners-Lee, who yep. is English, but he was working at, at CERN. I think he's uh, Sir Tim Berners now. I think he is indeed Sir Tim, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and he wanted. I mean, originally it was sort of kind of academic, and it was a way for people to share information. But the crucial thing was this notion of websites. In fact, his original notion of the the World Wide Web feels to me quite close to what Wikipedia ended up being. Because mm. it was much more... Like, it was supposed to be really easy to edit and make changes. Mm. And then the linking of pages together was, like, the fundamental new thing. That's why it's called a web. Because it's this web of all these links to each other. Right. And it seems obvious now that this is sort of the the way that the internet ended up being like most people now i think think of the the internet and the world wide web as more or less the same thing mm. but at the time you know the internet was all this collection of different protocols and gopher and ftp and email and irc and all these different things the world wide web was just one of them mm. one amongst many and it wasn't obvious that this was going to be the revolutionary thing that was right. going to bring the internet to kind of normal people right but it is interesting that those fundamental ideas that he had of links bringing pages together mm. and anyone being able to sort of very easily publish information and it being very egalitarian in that way mm. has continued to be a kind of fundamental part of the way people think about the web, I think. And the wall gardens like Pinterest and Facebook are a little bit of an exception to this. But people talk about the open web mm. when they're talking about the the sort of original imagination of the World Wide Web. And I think that is a very sort of impressive success yeah. that the, the World Wide Web has, has turned into. Absolutely. And long, long may it continue. Yeah, I think... Um my brother was always very, very cynical about all of this, and he always used to say, mm. "I mean, he was—he's a, a programmer of you know, uh, what 40, 40 years? Uh, mm. No, yes, about that forty years uh, experience. Mm-hmm. He's been programming for four decades, and he's very um, mm. of that generation. You know, he's a—he's—you <laughs> know what I'm talking about, Danny. He's a—he's an Emacs user, and uh, he—he's um, an X Emacs user. Yeah, yes, actually, X, not X as in he was an Emacs user, but the letter X. Well, he was. I'm not actually sure if he still is. I need to ask him. Uh, maybe he switched to uh, a real text editor. I don't know. But anyway, so he's he's always, um, you know, most of the uh, things like the GPL license, open source, mm-hmm. you know, classic shareware, those kinds of sort of old, old era internet concepts. Mm. <laughs> well, not that open source and GPL are anything like old era because they're very relevant today as well. Right. But yeah. He he is always very cynical about the the meeting of money and business together with the internet, mm. and always sort of saying whenever you ask him about the the history of the internet, how like there's no way that those original concepts can stay uh, can be held up as important as they should be mm. when you've got all of these corporate interests and business and money sort of. Uh, intricately locked in with the web now, mm. and you know, as an example, you know, like things like Facebook and Pinterest, like these sort of walled garden social media websites, mm. where 
they are trying to drive engagement, which means when you switch on the internet, mm -hmm. you go to their website. Mm. And, you know, how do they keep their servers running? Well, they feed you advertisements and people who they pay this company, you know, they'll pay for their advertisements to be up there so that billions of people will see their their banner ads or things like that. Mm. You know, I think that the moment that money becomes involved in the core principles of what the internet and the World Wide Web uh, with, were hoped to be, it all becomes very murky. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Uh, and I move in the sorts of circles that uh, <laughs> that, that cynicism and skepticism is, is commonplace. Mm. I have been there in terms of, you know, being very skeptical about all this. But I'm not sure that that's my mindset now. Mm. Although there is a very genuine sort of difficulty and, and a, a conflict, which I'm interested in seeing resolved, and I hope can be resolved, because it is true that money is driven by a different set of incentives than academic pursuit or mm. or a general uh, desire for, for freedom of speech or, or something like that. Mm. But I'm not... I don't think I'm in the position that I disagree in general with those incentives in all cases mm. or with capitalism as as a system per se. Those incentives and the desire to sort of make lots of money is what has led to a number of services that we use and take for granted now. Things like, for example... Lyft and Uber, the you know ride sharing apps, obviously Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, I I get a lot of use out of Twitter. We've talked in the past how good it is for networking, hmm. being able to chat online with my family in the UK or my wife's family in Japan very easily is it's another thing we used to be able to do. That was driven by business needs, hmm. and so you know, and these these things have problems as well, like Lyft and Uber, for example. The, the incentives that are brought about by the fact that they are sort of chasing VC money a lot and they, mm. they need to be in pursuit of growth the whole time. Right. There are different problems there. There's well-documented problems with the way they treat their drivers. Right. And Facebook has its set of issues as well. So that, yeah. there are problems. I'm not holding these up as examples of like, look how great capitalism is because of Uber. Like clearly, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> clearly that wouldn't be a good argument. Right. But... It has achieved something. It's achieved this, you know, this quality of life improvement that, that we all experience. Yeah. At the same time, I think for the internet, a very important thing which has started to feel like it's been lost over the last 10 or 15 years is the notion of federation. This came up in the whole Mastodon talk as well. Mm. But it used it used to be that most services for the internet were designed such that that they would design some protocol or some system. And then you could have multiple different implementations of that system. Right. Things like email, you'd have different email servers. Mm. You'd usually pay to have an email account, right? It didn't used to be free. Right. But different people could compete and, and offer their own email services, but mm. they could all intercommunicate. And the same thing with IRC, although that wasn't paid. Mm. RSS. The World Wide Web as well, RSS. Uh, all of these things involve different servers 
working in a kind of federated way that can all communicate with each other mm. because they've agreed on a shared language. Mastodon is another instance of this, which you know is trying to do the Twitter thing, but in in that way. Mm. Mastodon, I think, you know, once again it had that spike, but again it doesn't really seem to be making a dent in terms of being as widely u- used or accepted as, as something like Twitter. Toot, toot. So, like, I spend some time every now and then trying to think about how we can make these two worlds meet hmm. and what what business model there can be which can make money hmm. and can take advantage of the incentive of making money uh, that has proved to be valuable in terms of creating new and useful services, mm. but at the same time doesn't go against these principles of openness and, and federation mm. that, that the web embodies. And I don't really know what the solution is, but yeah. it's, it's that's the that's core to like trying to trying to make these uh, two sets of ideals meet. I think. Yeah. Often when my when my brother and I have these arguments, uh, they end up becoming arguments. And my position is usually that, well, yes, I mean, that the ideals are wonderful. But if you think about it pragmatically, how is it ever possible when you need, that there needs to be funding in order to keep a machine going that's actually providing these services or to pay an engineer to keep things mm-hmm. uh, working smoothly or mm-hmm. to pay developers, designers, etc to create, you know, new services or to solve problems or to make things better. Mm-hmm. You know, people, unfortunately, it's just a reality of, of society that, you know, we, we, we exchange uh, currency for goods and services, which means that, you know, people got to make money and, you, right. and, you know. I mean, I don't know if that is unfortunate. That is, well, I say there's definitely I'm, a certain set of people who, who think it is, but I, th- there are problems with it. Those are interesting to talk about, but I don't think it's prima facie true that that is a problem. No, I say unfortunate in the sense that it's unfortunate for the ideals and the goals in that if if money always has to become the the primary driving objective of things to do with the internet, then it's going to become you know basically using the internet becomes like a form of shopping, and we, we've talked about this many times before, right. I think for me, it being free and money not being involved is not an ideal. Like, I feel like it's a bit of a fallacy that is often made that people correctly identify that the, you know, the influence of money is the root cause of many of the problems that we have in the tech industry at the moment and in many industries. And therefore, money is the problem. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's possible for money to be a productive and positive and accelerating catalyst and and a good influence. But it's just not obvious. And so I'm more interested, I'm less interested in saying, well, money's the problem, so let's get rid of money and have these ideals about everything being free and doing work on a sort of volunteer basis or whatever. And I'm more interested in the kind of productive, proactive approach of saying, well, money has its benefits, but it also introduces these problems. 
So how can we try and steer the way we work to take advantage of those benefits while managing to avoid those problems? Mm. Yeah, I'm not saying uh, what you said that you disagree with. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, no. but, but I get the feeling that, that I mean, we are, we're sort of telegraphing an argument between you and your brother from however many years ago. I get the feeling that, that the position that you are arguing against perhaps the position your brother was taking or, or a, a similar position mm. is that. Yes. So basically my brother himself, you know, he contributes to the open source community and he's always loved the, the, you know, if it has to involve money, then make it shareware, but classic shareware, <laughs> which means mm. you kind of rely on the, the generosity and the benevolence uh, and the goodwill of a user to sort of think, well, I get very good use out of this free software. I might just throw some money at the person who made it to support them in their efforts. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, that I think it's, it's quite rare these days, you know, that kind of classic shareway. This is 100% well, free. Well, it's become, with Patreon, it's actually had a bit of a resurgence. I and think, that's true. That, that's that true. sort of approach. Yeah, that's true. But it's such a di difficult thing to reconcile. Mm. But, you know, I, I think um, I do agree with you that I think my I agree with you, but the reason is a little bit different. That I, I come from a different angle. That basically, money, unfortunately, it has to be involved mm. because people got to be paid for their work, mm -hmm. and you know machines need to be kept uh, well maintained. Mm. So it has to be involved. So yeah, and this, uh, from that that point on, that's where I agree entirely with you. That well, mm. okay. So if it has to be involved, then what's a better way to to, to make it work? In, in favor of these services rather than thinking that uh, if there was no money involved in the internet, everything would be rosy, which is kind of kind of my, my brother's right. uh, attitude at times. Just right. to, to cap off this conversation, conversation one um, pleasant experience I had last week mm. with, uh, with the internet mm. <laughs> was actually um, making, the, uh, making a website. And uh, I, I spent uh, a very frustrating four or five hours wrestling with WordPress Mm. <laughs> eventually sort of throwing my hands in the air and giving up and saying, all right, I, you know, can't handle this. I'm just going to write it myself, mm -hmm. <laughs> write the website myself, because WordPress is fantastic for making blogs, mm -hmm. but this site is for uh, for good times and it's not not a blog site. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't. So I was basically trying to sort of squash functionality that a lot of websites do very well these days, that they're actually mm -hmm. powered by WordPress, even though it's not mm -hmm. a blog, trying to sort of kind of uh, bend WordPress into something that it wasn't really designed to do, mm. just getting very frustrated. So in the end, I just said, okay, delete WordPress and then start writing HTML mm -hmm. uh, and styling it with CSS. Mm -hmm. And the pleasant experience that I had was that in the, the last time I wrote a site mm. uh, was many years ago. And I found that actually like the latest developments in mm -hmm. CSS are pretty remarkable mm. in that it's getting very, very close now to the original ideal of HTML and CSS, mm. which is where you're going to have to help me out with the uh, the programming jargon here, mm. that you, you can see this transition where HTML has gone from being very abstract mm. in the sense that you've got all of this formatting in with your content. Um, mm. And originally, of course, back in the day, everything was done with tables and mm. like layout was done with tables and it's mm -hmm. it's not a table 
it's right, right, right. it's only because you're just using it to lay things out. Yeah, it's only just because um, yeah, it, it, it forms a grid and that makes things easier. So you've got you make right. your graphics in the right size for each of the cells right. of your table, and there you go. You've got a, a graphical layout for your web page. Mm. But mm. the actual HTML is very distorted in that it's not pure content. Um, right. What's the right What's the right word? I think you know the. It's the There's Lewis. A, um, so the, the initial ideal, the, the reason for the, the invention of CSS essentially is to separate content from design. Exactly. So the, the, the content and the the word I think you're looking for might be semantic. That's like the, the, the HTML yeah, uh, has been trying to move towards a, a more semantic system where they have tags with names like header and content yeah, and footer. Exactly, that's it. Uh, and then you use the CSS to style those sections. Yeah, that's it. I was re- I was present pleasantly surprised because HTML went from tables through to divs, like div tags with mm-hmm. just div class this and div id that. Mm-hmm. Still very important, div tags. Yeah, of course, but just sort of sprawled across the HTML document. Mm. So CSS was always sort of heading towards this goal of being the you know the html is entirely content and the css is mm. entirely design mm. Mm. Uh, and and no crossover at all and mm-hmm. the last time i used it there was still some crossover remaining like in order to achieve mm-hmm. some uh layout effects with css mm. you needed to sort of do things in the html that were a little bit right kind of weird right. and purely in there for formatting reasons mm-hmm. and now one of the latest developments recent developments of CSS is the grid functions for CSS. Mm. And it's really changed everything. Like now grid, CSS grid layouts, mm-hmm. uh, which you do with display grid mm. as opposed to display block uh, or mm-hmm. display table. Now it, it it's kind of feels like we're pretty much there now that you can have the, the HTML document be entirely sort of quite readable just as content on its own right uh with no styling whatsoever and as you said a lot of the the for example instead of instead of um div mm. id header mm. you actually have a tag header mm-hmm. and then instead of you know div id main content you have a tag section right uh, so that the html file reads very easily and then all of this can be put in together with these nice uh, grid based layouts in css fantastic yeah yeah, it, it it definitely has got a lot better. CSS is also becoming a lot more advanced as a language. It's starting to gain yeah. uh, properties like uh, not, um, where you can say, you know, I want this to apply to anything of this tag that is not of this class. Right. Which you can do some clever things there with sort of having either or relationships where you have two little CSS blocks and you say, okay, this is the one for this tag and this is the one for every tag other than this tag. Yeah, and um, um, variables as well. Variables are starting. Yeah, they used to be like a pre-processor thing. Like there were a couple of... Less, um, less is it? Sass. Called less was one and Sass was one, yeah, that would, that would generate CSS. But some of those features are now coming into CSS proper, which is, I think, an, an improvement. Yeah, and also um, smooth scrolling. You used to have to use a JavaScript to get uh, mm. smooth scrolling, but smooth scrolling is actually now in CSS itself. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, it's, it's like uh, like behave, scroll behavior is I think mm. is the the CSS um, what do you call it property that can be set mm. to like smooth or something, and then mm-hmm. then that emulates that kind of smooth scrolling. Mm. So yeah, it's fantastic. Cool. Yeah, there's I still think we're not quite there yet. The main thing that I use CSS for these days is to style my Anki cards. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's great and uh 
I've been obviously I've been I've been uh, inserting all these cards that are taken from these JLPT textbooks. And over the weekend, one thing I was trying to add is that the textbook I'm using for some of the this is for the grammar portion, right? The naradewa and all those things. Yeah. For some of them, next to the definition, it adds like a little marker saying like when this is used. So it'll say, for example, this is a very formal kind of expression, or this is mainly used in written, you know, in writing. It's not really spoken, or vice versa. You know, this is usually spoken word kind of phrasing, and you wouldn't write it down, right? Hmm. Um, so all these, the, 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 so far, those are the three I've encountered. These categories, and they have this little bubble next to the definition, which is a it's an, a square box for the. This is a little bit stiff and formal. Katai kata. Hmm. And for the spoken word, it's in a, like a pill-shaped, rounded ends box. Right. Which, which says hanashi kotoba or something like that, like spoken word. And then for the, for the stuff that is in the written words, the box has, has got like triangles at the end. It's like a diamond-shaped box. Right. So it's the same box at the top and the bottom, but left and right, they've got like sort of spiky ends. Yeah. And so you can see at a glance, it's not only that it says this, but by you get used to the different shapes and you know, oh, this is the round one, this is the spoken word one, or this is the, you know, this is the um, diamond-shaped one, so it's the written word. Hmm. So I wanted to reproduce this on my cards because I thought it was a good system. So and, and the other thing I wanted to do is I didn't want to have to add a whole field for this mm. or manually write any HTML in my card saying like, you know, usage notes or something like that. Mm. So what I actually wanted to do is Anki has a thing where you can tag cards. Um, so you just give it a certain, you know, you can give it all sorts of different tags and you can use those to filter the cards and look them up later. So I wanted to tag them with these kind of things. So then I could later just look up all the spoken word vocabulary or all the written vocabulary or whatever. And I wanted the card to automatically add this annotation for cards that are tagged in this way. Mm. And so I was able to do this with CSS by just having the CSS actually expanding the, the set of tags into the CSS and saying, okay, this is the, you know, this is going to be for these tags. And then CSS allows you to insert text. Do you know about the before and after yep. uh, sort of meta properties yes. in CSS? Yeah. So you can say before this tag or before anything with this class, add this text, yeah. right? It's often used for like bullet lists and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, or quotation marks or stuff like that. But I was able to just say, I have these this tag which contains no content. And then in the before section i just added like what i wanted it to say mm. and it all worked quite well i did the square one i did the round one and then i got to the diamond shaped one <laughs> yeah you'd need to have and yeah uh, yeah i know tr trying to make a diamond <laughs> shape in css is tricky yeah and annoyingly because i was already making use of the before tag yeah um you can't have before before either right so um that, that is like i think the standard is moving towards adding that but it's not there yet right right so so I couldn't use that. So I ended up having to add a tag to my HTML. Right. So I've got like div class usage border. Yeah. And then within that div class usage content. Yeah. And then I control the whole thing with 
with CSS. And every time I have to do that, I feel like I've lost the game a little bit in CSS. Like that's yeah. that's what we're trying to move away from, I think. Yeah. That's I mean that's a tricky one. Like those kinds of diagonal diagonal lines and things like that is uh, mm-hmm. you can do it with um the li- uh, linear repeating gradients for the background property mm-hmm. which will which will allow you to do sort of um angled lines of color mm-hmm. but uh, yeah it, it's a background color which means to, it needs to operate on a, an actual tag so right. you would need to put that in the html i guess so, this, so right yeah <laughs> anyway you know it's just just one of those things but i think we are we are moving in the right direction the, sure. the other thing of course is vertical centering which is still a black art only mastered by the real well, adepts well, 20 years into css yeah actually actually uh that's all very very easy now with the new grid models in uh, css i don't believe you it's true <laughs> <laughs> you can believe me because that was uh i had um working with the grid uh, display grid property uh, for css mm. over this past week the vertical centering was actually the easiest part of all of that. Mm. The, the more difficult part was actually, because it's a grid, it's a rigid layout, mm. there's these amazing new units called FR units, which is like free room units that mm. all remaining space is an FR, is one FR is all remaining mm-hmm. space. So actually getting the grid to react uh, properly when you're resizing the browser window mm. for like tablets and, and phones mm. Um, mm. That was what was the the real headache, right? Because obviously the grid is much more rigid, unlike the old style where you have all these divs everywhere and you're floating things right, right. left and right. Yeah. When it's floated, it it'll sort of slot underneath at the time that the the, mm. the browser window changes. But um, the viewport, I should say, mm. but uh, it's much more difficult with the grid. But vertical centering is not that difficult. So, oh. do you know the other thing they've added recently, which I was very happy to see is support for vertical text mm. so for Japanese websites and stuff like that because the last time I looked into this was probably coming on for 10 years ago. Mm. It used to be extremely difficult. If you wanted a, a website to look sort of traditionally Japanese and to have the text written right to left and vertically mm. instead of left to right and horizontally, you had to do all sorts of fancy JavaScript and most people just ended up just making images right. and putting the image up which obviously looks terrible mm. and takes a long time to download and doesn't doesn't scale well to retina displays and has all sorts of other problems. Uh, but now uh, it's just a property in CSS that you can say this this uh, block or whatever uh, is going to be vertical text. That's great. So that's good. It'll be interesting yeah. to see if any Japanese uh, websites pick up on that because uh, as uh, I think we may have mentioned previously on Station thirteen. It's uh, you know Japanese web design is on a very very different track from the from the <laughs> from the, uh, the the rest of the world in that uh, yeah. it often can appear. I to think it depends on the thing. I mean, sites like Nakuten and print printpack.co.jp. I think unless they've updated it recently, mm. printpac. Mm. That's the classic. Let's see if it's still the same. Oh, there it is. This is. I, I don't know if it's the same, but this is classic. Yes. Classic traditional Japanese. Yeah, this is it. This, um, oh, look at that. Web design. Oh. <laughs> but I think this is this is one side of Japanese web design. But if you look at the websites for, for example, tea houses like Places 70 or for uh, Onsen, right. you'll find that they actually do quite often have a very nice, very clean, refined design. So it really depends on the, the kind of, service and it's not it's not the case that the sort of japanese design sense is 
is bad or wrong or is 100% moving in this direction. No, no, it's not. Uh, we should, for, for the benefit of those people who are currently doing house chores uh, <laughs> as they listen, um, the, the Print Pack website is basically a wall of animated GIF, uh, GIF banners and uh, mm-hmm. numbers and text. And it's like you just, it's a, it's a buzz of, you just don't really know where to look. There's a lot going um, on. It's not that this is. Previously, we I think we had talked about it. It's not necessarily that this is bad design in the context mm-hmm. of Japanese web design because previously when I used to work in web design in Japan, one of the things that they want it to feel like is that they want it to feel ikikisteru, which means mm. kind of feel sort of buzzing with, with, with activity and, and mm. vibrancy. And mm. yes, this <laughs> print pack <laughs> is definitely buzzing with activity and vibrancy and is very very different from the the Western approach, which is like much more minimal and much more mm. you know, it guides your eye through very very critically selected chunks of information. Whereas here, mm. it's kind of like this this kind of tapestry of just text and and images and movement and numbers and stuff right. that you kind of got. So to I think wait they through. want to give the impression that it is packed with information and content and good stuff. Yes, and you can really dig in and and it's like going to a like a a discount clothes store. Some people really enjoy that. Right. Like the, the the clothes are just not really arranged in any logical order and they're just on these huge racks packed full of clothes and people like digging into them yeah. and finding the, the sort of diamond in the rough. Yeah, I think that the, the origin of this design comes from the uh, like the supermarket what you, supermarket sales flyers? I don't know what you supermarket mm, like. Mm. What do you call them? Supermarket sales flyers sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, junk mail that comes into your letterbox from a supermarket. Basically, mm-hmm. where in that situation, there's actually a um, there's a, there's an economical reason that they want to pack as much sale information onto these limited sheets of paper because mm-hmm. it costs more to print more paper. So they're trying to pack as much in there as possible. And the Western supermarket flyers are, are similar mm. and they're very busy with lots of numbers and lots of information packed onto them. Mm. Um, whereas Western web design has headed in the direction of being more like billboard design, like roadside billboard design, mm. where it's like you've got three seconds to get somebody's attention and leave them with some kind of memorable, you know, uh, takeaway from your product. Mm. Um, in the case of Japanese web design, they're trying to go for that supermarket look, <laughs> which is right. why it looks right. like this. So, and not all, I mean, I think it's too much of a generalization to say Japanese web design. This particular kind of website is going for that thing. Mm. Like this, the, the websites that are selling lots of stuff, like they want to give that impression of we're packed full of lots of stuff. Right. But like I say, like, you know, hot spring resorts and hotels yeah, and, yeah, it's true. and websites like that, like they want to give the impression that this is a calm, relaxing place that yep. you're going to want to be in. And so they do go for a much more sort of, a quieter design, I think. Yeah, that's that's true, of course. Um, I, mean, I would say Japanese web design broadly simply because, you know, when you work in a Japanese company and you're looking at Japanese company websites all the time mm. for corporate mm. stuff, they, they tend to look very busy. Mm. Whereas, as, as you say, of course, there is a, a large sector of Japanese web design that is much more minimal and much more uh, restrained. <laughs> <laughs> 